Have you ever had perhaps some negative expectations about a place you were going or a person you were going to meet, only to be surprised when you actually got to the place or actually met the person? Uh, That is, at times in our life, there's this disconnect between our expectations and reality. Uh, Some of you may recognize the picture of Susan Boyle. Uh, This is the young lady uh, who, back in 2009, actually wowed the judges, surprised Simon Cowell and the judges of America's Got Talent with her incredible voice. Uh, If you've seen the video, the look on the judges' faces once she started singing, made clear that she exceeded all expectations. When I was growing up, rather than Susan Boyle, we might have thought of Gomer Pyle. Uh, if you heard Gomer speak, I know you're thinking, Tarwater, that's you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, if you heard Gomer speak and then you heard Gomer sing, golly, there was a disconnect between expectations and reality. But it's not always negative expectations. Sometimes we have high expectations only to be disappointed when somebody doesn't live up to those lofty expectations. If you're a football fan, you might recognize the name Ryan Leaf. He was the number two overall picked in the 1998 uh, NFL draft, only behind Peyton Manning. I bring him up because at the time, there were many commentators who were questioning whether or not he should be number one, and Peyton, who is from the state of Tennessee, uh, should be number one. And, well, now today, Ryan Leaf goes down as perhaps one of the biggest NFL busts in history. As we have walked through the book of Matthew, we've seen time and again, there's this disconnect between the expectations of the people and the reality about which Jesus Christ has been teaching, the reality of his kingdom. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Brother Tim was talking us through uh, Matthew chapter 18. And the only reason I bring this up is it's part of the style in which Matthew writes. Uh, Here I refer to it as the Matthean method, but it's his textual strategy, if you will. In, In Matthew chapter 18, you recall that the disciples were perhaps they had expectations about what does it mean to be great in his kingdom? Or what does it mean to forgive? Uh, Peter thought perhaps, well, if I forgive seven times, perhaps that is enough. And Jesus, again, showed there was a disconnect between his expectations and reality. And he said, let's see if I can get this going the right way. I'm the, the one who's driving wrongly here. I do not say to you seven times seven, but 70 times 7. And then later in uh, last week, Tim talked to us about this difference between their expectations of what it means to be great and what it means to be a leader. And Jesus said this. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And whoever wishes to be great among you must become a servant. There was this disconnect between their expectations and reality. But another aspect of the way that Matthew writes is that he constantly uses these Old Testament texts to to demonstrate something about the nature and and the identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, more than any other gospel writer, Matthew uses more Old Testament quotations, Old Testament allusions. He draws from uh, themes 
that requires some degree of familiarity with the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Back in Matthew chapter 1, uh, the, uh, Matthew uh, began to write with his genealogy, while at the same time alluding to the genealogy of Genesis chapter 3. And in doing so, Matthew was attempting to demonstrate something about who this Jesus Christ was, that he was this long-awaited Messiah from the line of David. And whereas other descendants of David, their reigns ended in disappointment, Matthew was writing to say, this one shall exceed all expectations. This isn't just some child who happened to be born in Bethlehem. He says, this is Emmanuel, God with us. This one has come to save the people from their sins. One other aspect of his, his writing style I want to bring up is that he writes with a way uh, that has these structural markers or clues that are meant to aid the reader in understanding the text rightly. For example, uh, we have talked several times throughout the sermon series of Matthew that began back in September that Matthew has these five major teaching narratives. Uh, we can call them discourses or, or sermons, major sections in your Bible that are read where Jesus is doing all the teaching. But these five discourses actually fit into two larger sections that are delineated by uh, this common phrase, from that time, Jesus began to. Uh, two different settings. That is, if you're going to understand these first three sermons rightly, you have to realize that they're part of that first set of sections. That is, in chapter 4, Jesus began to teach them and begin his public ministry. A section that ended with the confession of Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But at that point in the gospel, Matthew uses the phrase again. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. There he says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. From that time on, Matthew is focused like a laser on Jesus approaching the cross. If we're to understand Sermon 4 and Sermon 5, chapters 18, chapters 23, 24, or even our text today, we must recognize that it falls in this second section where Jesus is on his way to the cross. Matthew is saying that whatever we want to say about Jesus' kingship or the salvation that he is seeking to bring, it must include a trip to Jerusalem. It must include suffering. It must include dying on the cross. You cannot understand the text rightly without that. So I bring these three clues up because they tell us something about the text that we're doing today. We will see all three aspects of it. And indeed, we come here to uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. It says, when they had approached Jerusalem. Well, there it is. Uh, Matthew, in fact, has repeated this three times throughout the text. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. And he's given this structural clue that says everything about from here on, from 16 to 28, is about him approaching Jerusalem. So when we read this in verse 1, Matthew said, when they draw near to Jerusalem, you, the reader, are supposed to interpret that as the cross is quickly approaching. 
See, when we read Matthew, we realize that we're reading a narrative version of, his, of the life of Christ. And as such, we want to read it the way Matthew intended. But it's interesting, even though it's a narrative person, if we will say, Jesus is, is a product of this narrative, it's interesting to stop every once in a while and just say, hey, he's a real person who lived in history, and these are actual events that really occurred. But we're reading the narrative version of it, and as such, we want to try to understand it as Matthew intended. I say that because when we look at the Gospels, say Mark and John, two Gospels, they really have no birth narrative, but they spend about half of their Gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, he spends from chapters 21 through 26 on the last week of Jesus' life. This is the author's way of saying, you need to slow down and linger here for a while. Now, this is what we want to do as we walk through the text. We want to dwell here and see what God is telling us about this last week of Jesus' life. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, it says, and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, this again is the narrative version of, of the author setting the picture in your mind. If I were to say, uh, somebody's coming from, from Pennsylvania to Ohio. In your, in, your, in your mind's eye, you'd look at the map. You'd say, he's coming from the east. He's coming from Pittsburgh to Columbus. Uh, here the author is saying, uh, he's coming from Bethpage up to the Mount of Olives. It's just a way of saying he's, he's coming from the east. But if you see the picture, they're ascending the Mount of Olives. And when they crest the mountain, you look out and you can see Jerusalem in the distance. You can see the entire temple complex. That's the picture that Matthew has drawn in your eyes. And he says, when that happens, Jesus sent two of the disciples out to go get a donkey, and it's cold. As we read on, we, uh, he says that uh, you'll get them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. We don't know if this is something that Jesus arranged beforehand or if Jesus is acting in his supernatural capacity. But what we do know is that the disciples obeyed. And so the disciples went and did just as Jesus had requested. They get the donkey. It's called. It says they laid their garments upon them, and Jesus rode into town. So this is Matthew's way of saying that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's easy to understand that narrative. Now, you'll notice I have some stars there in the tech, in my slide, because there's this break between verses 3 and verse 6. For it is right here that Matthew interrupts the narrative. And he says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what the, was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's a way of saying, say to Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal, the beast of burden. Now, there's a part of me that wants to say, why would Matthew put that in there? I mean, is this the first century version of giving a footnote? <laughs> you know, you have to cite at least one source in you know, every, every page, you know, rather than there, for the English teacher. Or what is he doing here? Or is he just merely saying, hey, it was prophesied, and Jesus fulfilled that? 
Or is Matthew saying something more? This is a quote that comes from the book of Zechariah. So let's back up to the book of Zechariah for just a minute. Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai, prophesying shortly after the Babylonian captivity. So we're talking about the year 520 B.C. Now you would think that having spent time in in exile, uh, the people of God would have learned their lesson. But when we start reading through the book of Zechariah, what becomes readily clear is they didn't. They were just as disobedient as they had been before they left. And so we come to Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 11. What we see is that the people desperately need a Savior. They refuse to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint. I think Trent in his reading earlier said uh, their hearts were diamond hard. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of the host had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. These people needed a Savior. And in the context of the book of Zechariah, the prophet is making clear the current leaders, Zerubbabel or Joshua, they will not do. And so Zechariah looks out into the future And he saw a day when indeed the Savior would come. He saw, it says, the I will return and dwell in Zion, says the Lord. And with great wrath and jealousy I have for her. Look at this. He shall return and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, verse 3. Verse 7, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I'll bring them back and I'll live in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 10, it'll be a time of peace. The the vine will yield its fruit and its produce. It'll be a time of blessing. He's looking out and he sees the king who is bringing salvation. And the whole key to the text comes in chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, Rejoice, O O daughter of Zion and Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the point. Matthew's writing, and he says, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah is writing, and he says, the king who brings salvation is riding into town on a donkey. Now, there's a part of me that has to say, wonder what was going through Zechariah's mind when he was writing 500 years before the time of Christ. Imagine the prophet. I mean, he's, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. He's writing down, king is coming, king is coming on a donkey. I'm sorry, repeat that again, Lord. (laughs) On a donkey? Seriously? Here's my point. Zechariah may have had a question when he heard that, but Matthew didn't. And Jesus Christ didn't have a question here. Imagine if Jesus had said, I would like disciples, when you get the donkey, I would like you to stop by the printer's And have this big banner printed up that says, the king is coming to Jerusalem and he's bringing salvation. 
And the disciples say, there is no printer at this time, Lord. He said, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll ride into town on a donkey. That's the way you would say it. That's his banner. And this is in stark contrast to everything else he's been doing in the gospel. Think about this. Time and again, Christ has resisted the attempts of the people to make him king. The, the phrase that we've seen time and again, he says, but tell no one. Every time he does something miraculous. Matthew chapter 18, he heals a leper. Verse 4, be sure to tell no one. Matthew 16, Jesus, uh, Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus warned the disciples, verse 20, tell no one. But here, when he chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, in no uncertain terms, he is shouting, the king who brings salvation is coming. Jesus declares that he is the king who brings salvation. That's verses 1 through 7. In verses 8 through 16, we're going to see how the people respond. So let's pick up Matthew chapter 28, verse 8. And it says that most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now, this would be an expected response if the king is indeed coming into town. That is, by their actions, it looks like the people are praising the king as he enters. And not just by what they're doing, look at what they're shouting. The crowds, verse 9, going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus has just declared that he is the king by riding in on a donkey, and the people are agreeing with him. They are acclaiming praise to him. Son of David, merely a phrase that says, this is the Messiah, one from the line of David. Hosanna simply means salvation or, or God saves. This was a time of happiness, a time of joy. The people were excited. Adults were praising him, but some people were confused. Look at this. Some were asking, who is this? <laughs> Others with perhaps a degree of confidence. This is the prophet, I think, Jesus from Nazareth. In other words, they knew something about where he was from, but perhaps not much more than that. I mean, he was a prophet, but here he is much more than that. What I want to draw your attention to is verses 15 and 16. Look at this. Not only were the adults praising him, but so were the children. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. The children. Now, to some degree, I doubt they fully understood what they were saying. <laughs> I mean, Jesus had ridden into town and they had heard their parents, Hosanna to the son of David. In verse 14 of our text, Jesus heals a lame man and a blind man. I'm sure the children are just mimicking their parents. A reminder to us that kids see what their parents do. You know, if, if you want kids that praise the Lord, you need to praise the Lord. But here they are mimicking, Hosanna to the son of David. 
And while the children may not have fully understood, what I want you to see is that the chief priests did. This is why they were so angry. And so they cry out to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? This is the, the textual way of saying, are you not going to do something about this? They were angry because in their ears, this was blasphemous. What the chief priests are hearing the people say is, this is the Messiah. God save us. And they said, this ought not be. And so the chief priests say to Jesus, <laughs> I love this, do you hear this? And Jesus says, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, now the text says yes, but that's the point. Do you hear this? Uh-huh. And then he quotes for us a passage from Psalm chapter 8. Look at this. He says to the people, you, yes, and never, and have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Again, this is part of the Matthean method using these Old Testament texts. But what is Matthew saying here? Again, a quote from Psalm chapter 8, a familiar psalm. Let's go back there to Psalm 8 for a second. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Why is the psalmist praising God? He says, well, when I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, what is it? the moon, the stars, when I look up and I see this vast expanse, I can't help but praise God. And he said, in contrast to the, the greatness of that, I think of man himself who is completely insignificant or seems so by comparison. And yet you take note of me. What is man that you are mindful of him? And then he says, uh, and the son of man, a particular person, you might say, within humanity, that you would care for him. Now again, I skipped from verse 1 to verse 3. For right there in the middle is that passage that Jesus quoted. He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. What is the psalmist saying? And what was Jesus saying? When Jesus rode into town, the people were treating him like a king. They're taking their coats off. They're waving the palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, Lord save, son of David, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, quoting this passage, is in essence saying, the children got it right. The psalmist is saying, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. How majestic is your name? And even the children recognize that God is worthy of praise. They see his strength. That is, the children recognize the one who is worthy to be praised. And by quoting the passage, Jesus is saying to their question, do you hear the children? Jesus says, yes, they're right. And here's the contrast. Here's the expectations we didn't see. Children have been mimicking their parents. And when Jesus calls attention to this, he's saying, perhaps you adults and you religious leaders need to mimic the children. Yeah, they didn't see that one coming. Jesus is the king who brings salvation. And Jesus is the king who is worthy to be praised. Now, we've done verses 1 through 16, but I skipped over verses 12 and 13. Let's look at that just a second. This is the, 
the, the two verses that deal with Jesus cleansing the temple. It says in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. If you recall earlier, I talked about cresting the Mount of Olives, and you look at it and you can see the temple complex. I say that because the term temple can carry some different connotations. It could refer to the temple proper where only the priest went, or the temple could refer to those outer courts, the court of Jews and the court of the Gentiles. Indeed, this is what we're talking about here, this court of the Gentiles. This is the place where they're buying and they're selling, if you will. And again, one would expect that. The people have come from great distances in order to worship at the temple, to offer their sacrifices. And in many ways, it's impractical for them to maybe bring a sheep or a lamb or a goat uh, these long distances. And so the system was set up so that one could come to Jerusalem and there buy your lamb or exchange your money for offering in the temple there. Now, uh, in our current economic context in the United States, <laughs> there's, if you've not heard, there's a supply chain problem. And so uh, last year, in December, one of my daughters um, was driving in a manner that afforded my wife and I the opportunity to buy a new car. We'll just kind of leave it at that. And um, so in December, we went shopping for cars. And if you've not been shopping for a car lately, a car lot, I'm not making this up, <laughs> with my hand raised. <laughs> we went to a car lot that normally had 400 cars, and there were four cars. Four cars. Now, when there's not that much choice, there's not much haggling that goes on either. <laughs> uh, because the new car market was so bad, people had gone to used cars, and if you didn't know this, the used cars last year, the prices rose 40%. Now imagine that you have just traveled to Jerusalem. Not a whole lot of options for buying a lamb <laughs> or a goat or a pigeon or exchanging your money. It happens in the temple. And rather than a 40% increase, perhaps they're paying four times the normal value. And in such a context, it's not difficult to imagine what Jesus' opinion of this situation was. Indeed, he was saying, hey, this is my house, and this house ought to be a house that is a place of prayer. This is a place that should be where people are worshiping, and yet it wasn't. The people had begun to exchange that which was holy for that which was common or secular. And Jesus said, this ought not be. And it's at this moment that he quotes the passage from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den, or an allusion to uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. But again, what is Matthew doing when he's drawing us to this context? We flip over to Isaiah 56 for just a moment. And in Isaiah 56, again we see that the context, as has been in the other two passages, is the context of salvation. For my salvation is about to come, he says in verse 1. 
And this salvation that is coming is not just for the one who is from Israel. Verses 3 and verse 6, he mentions the foreigner. In verse 8, he talks about, and others I will gather. Or even in verse 7, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, he says. For all nations. Indeed, in the mark and parallel of this story, that's what he adds. That is, we're talking about the God who saves, the God who saves all nations. This God who saves in all nations is met in the temple. It's in the temple that they encounter God. It's in the temple that they worship that God. See, we don't have to wonder what Jesus was thinking when he overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out. Writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew tells us to us. He says that, first of all, this ought to be a place of worship. It's a house of prayer. Why? Secondly, because it is here that you encounter the God who brings salvation to the nations. <laughs> what an incredible thought. Even here, where we are, God has promised where two or three are gathered in my name, there I shall be also. The Lion of Judah, who rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, whom the children rightly recognized as worthy to be praised, is worshipped here. And he is encountered. The text, for the most part, has been pretty clear for us today. Jesus is the king who brings salvation. Jesus is the king who is worthy to be praised. Jesus is the king who brings salvation to the nations. The main idea is this. The king who brings salvation to the nations is worthy to be praised. That's the text we've heard today. And in such a text, it begs the question, why is it at times Jesus is not praised and worshiped? Or if we make it personal, what is it that's keeping you from worshiping Jesus? What is it that's keeping you from worshiping Jesus? Here I give you two answers, you see. True praise comes from understanding rightly one's need. And true praise comes from recognizing who Jesus is. Here's what I'm saying. In the context, there were people who were encountering Jesus. As he rode into town on a donkey, there were people who were making acclamations, if you will, to Jesus that could only be considered, if you will, honorific or praise and worship. But in many ways, we wouldn't consider it real worship or true worship because the people didn't really know who Jesus was, nor did they recognize their own need. Here's what I'm talking about. When Jesus came into town, uh, there were people shouting praises, but perhaps uh, the praises were coming from, well, they had heard that here in verse 14, he had just healed a lame man and a blind man. Historically, this follows Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We've already read where he calmed the storm, he walked on water. I mean, if you'd been a Jew in the first century, you'd have to say, surely this guy can help us overthrow the Romans. Surely we can break free from Roman oppression from a man who could do that. The people feared the Romans. But what Matthew has shown us in our text, Matthew chapter 10, if we go back, he says, 
Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but is unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell. You just, you ought not be fearing the Romans. You need to fear the God who is pouring out his wrath upon all unrighteousness. And if you understood your need, then you would be doing exactly what those people were doing on the road to Jerusalem. Hosanna, God save us. God save us now. See, all of us are like those people who are on the road to Jerusalem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. We all need to cry out, God save us. Hosanna. Hosanna. True praise comes from recognizing one's need before an almighty God. And secondly, it comes from recognizing rightly who he is. The people were asking, who is it? Who is it? Is he a prophet? Yes. But he's more than that. See, this takes us back to our introduction about expectations. (laughs) In many ways, they were worshiping a Jesus of their own creation rather than the Jesus whom we have seen revealed through the pages of Scripture. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They wanted perhaps a a one who could save them from Roman oppression. And interestingly, Jesus could do that. But it wasn't his primary purpose. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He says that he came to, to heal them of their sins. It's interesting because when Jesus came into town, it says that he came riding on a donkey, humble and gentle. Writing in the book of Revelation, John gives us a picture of what it's like when Jesus comes into Jerusalem the second time. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Listen to this. And I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The donkey's gone, okay? Uh, The donkey's history. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Humble and gentle, they're gone. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one except himself knows. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him in white horses. You've got Jesus coming in a whole army behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Wow. What a contrast between the first coming and the second coming. When he comes back the second time, he's coming 
to strike down the nations, to destroy the Antichrist forces that have challenged him throughout history, and to execute judgment against sin. But for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is a day of salvation. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a day just like the people celebrated when he came into Jerusalem the first time. Jesus has said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. His desire is that he might give your weary soul rest. Oh, that we might respond to this one who brings salvation to the nations. He is worthy to be praised. We have praised him with our music this morning. We've praised him with the word. We're about to praise him with communion. It ought to be our life when we leave this place to praise him. But I'm under no illusions that there's not someone here today who has not yet recognized fully their need for the Savior and fully submitted to this king and his reign in their life. And this is what we want to see happen today. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray to you right now, as the musicians are coming and we continue to praise you now, Father, if there's anyone who does not yet know you as their personal Savior, I pray that right now you might begin to prick their heart and that they might respond rightly as your word has shown us through Matthew and become disciples of you. Oh, Father, that they might respond to your beckoning call on their heart. And for those of us who do know you, that we might praise you rightly and worship you as the king who brings salvation. Oh, Father, hear us now. All hail the power of Jesus' name.